This is attorney Maytal Manzuri. And this is attorney Alexa Steinberg. And together, we're Legally Blunt. Okay guys, so today we're gonna be talking about business basics. So if you are a devout listener, or if you're just tuning in, we did a whole episode on patient basics. Go listen. Or maybe um, you know it all and you skipped ahead, and that's fine too. Oh, we're talking about those type of people. <laughs> yeah, the know it alls. <laughs> those types. Are you those types? Oh, maybe think they should it. go back and listen. <laughs> maybe they should. I think the know it alls are especially the people that need to go back and listen. But if you are running a business, odds are you're a patient. Hopefully. No, not hopefully. You are a patient. We're going to tell you, you are a patient. So if you're a patient and you would like to operate, work at, think about a medical marijuana business or a medical cannabis business, here in California, that is, then we will be discussing the laws and how it applies to you. How can you protect yourself under current California law? So California, anything that we say on this podcast is within the realms and borders of this lovely golden state. And this is not legal advice. It's just general education. Absolutely. There are three pieces of, I guess they're legislation or guidelines in the state of California that you need to follow if you are a medical cannabis business. And those are the Medical Marijuana Program Act, the Compassionate Use Act, and the Attorney General Guidelines of 2008. Yeah, so if you rewind back in time, the Compassionate Use Act was passed in 1996. That was the original law that said... Medical marijuana is legal in California. Or it said, seriously (laughs) ill Californians can now use medical cannabis to treat an illness. That's all it basically said. So it did not provide for the distribution, for retail sales, none of that. It just entitled the patient to use cannabis. And that sounds absurd because the logical next question is where are they supposed to get it from? (laughs) The funny thing is, though, is that's kind of how every medical cannabis law in the country has evolved. They first start with the patient being allowed to possess or grow it. And then they work backwards. (laughs) Exactly. So that happened in 96. Then several years later, the Medical Marijuana Program Act was passed by the legislature to come up with some sort of distribution rules. And that sort of failed miserably in that it didn't really provide the specifics that business operators need. Then fast forward to 2008, 12 years after the Compassionate Use Act, the Attorney General came up with guidelines. The Attorney General was Jerry Brown, who is our governor today. Yes. And he must be like a cannabis proponent because he came up with the Attorney General guidelines and just passed the The MMRSA. Just FYI, guys, the guidelines are just that. They're guidelines. They're guidelines. They're not necessarily law. So, uh, yeah, so up until recently, you know, when I would go to court to defend somebody, those are the three things that I would use to argue their case. That and sort of case law, so what courts have come up with. In trial, I've handed the jury a copy of the Attorney General guidelines, and they use it to evaluate whether my client is operating legally or illegally. So the Attorney General guidelines, Google it, you can bring it up, it's an 11-page document, we know it by heart, and that is sort of your Bible as to how you're supposed to operate a collective legally. 
Now, what is a collective? Well, a collective is an umbrella term for all marijuana businesses. So you can be a manufacturer or a grower or own a dispensary or do retail or wholesale, whatever it is, you should be a collective. That's a general term for all of these businesses. Actually, if you go into the attorney general guidelines, he doesn't even know what a collective is. He looks no. it up in the dictionary and uses Merriam-Webster's definition of collective to say that's how we should be operating as a collective. And now that is that is our definition, a dictionary definition. So the next question is, well, I want you know, I want a cooperative and not a collective. So what's you what's read my mind? I was about to like <laughs> say that. You're right. Maytal and I are are we become one mind at certain points in the day. A collective that is defined by Merriam-Webster and what we sort of follow. And the cooperative is statutorily defined, which means there's a statute that gives you the exact definition of what a cooperative is and how they should operate. Anytime I hear cooperative, I think co-op. And I went to undergrad in Davis and there's like a ton of agriculture well and we were the Aggies so there's like a ton of agricultural co-ops where everybody like works on the land and lives in one big house together and and that's how kind of up until recently law enforcement and district attorneys defined a collective or a co-op I had a detective testify once that it's supposed to be like the Amish where everybody <laughs> does something <laughs> I swear I have the transcript in the trial. So that's... I would have loved to be there for that one. I didn't hear that one. Like the Amish. Ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly what you should be picturing right now. The same thing we are. So that's kind of the idea behind a co-op and some of the rules behind a co-op. And a collective is a lot more flexible and liberal as to structure and operation. There are some lawyers out there that like cooperatives over collectives. Right. Yeah. But I, you know, my personal opinion is that I like collectives because it gives you more room and more freedom. Right. As this industry has sort of progressed and become way more advanced than we ever could have thought 10 years ago or 20 years ago. The collective model allows you to remain in compliance to the best of your ability and also follow corporate law, have a defense in court, etc., etc. A cooperative, again, is like the Amish. <laughs> and so that's where we get our first rule. The Attorney General guideline says that if you are a medical cannabis business, in California, you need to be either a collective or a cooperative. So that's step one. Step that's one. That's like the basic of the basic. And technically, the cooperative needs to file articles of incorporation and be a corporation. A collective technically does not need to have any formal business structure, but may decide to do one to keep organized. And we recommend it because... Whenever I walk in to see a prosecutor, the first thing she asks me is, Articles of incorporation, please. They're a business. Where's their paperwork? Where's their documentation? That's the first thing they ask for. And it's so available to you. Why would you not take advantage of that? Yeah. Now, what happens if you file your Articles of Incorporation in Sacramento on June 1st? Then on June 2nd, are the feds going to be knocking down your door and hauling you off? Again, that's a no. 
So this is sort of that big brother paranoia that we see sometimes out in this industry is, am I going to get in trouble just because I did what I was supposed to do? The answer is again, yes and no. (laughs) That's every question, any question we're ever going to ask you guys, the answer is always yes and no. Yes and no. So the truth is, is that, you know, we haven't seen anybody specifically targeted because they have organized themselves as a business. It is not in the Secretary of State's jurisdiction or intention to turn every medical marijuana business filing into a criminal prosecution. That being said, that information is out there and is recoverable. So if you advertise your business on Craigslist, and since police do have access to Craigslist... Yes, they have the internet, just like we do. They they, have Facebook. They have anything you can imagine, just like us. They can quickly do a corporation search. You know, they can find a lot more information out about you because you've put yourself out there. But that's not just because you filed your articles of incorporation. That's because you're advertising on Craigslist. Yeah, which probably isn't the best place to advertise. But then again... Maytal advertised on Craigslist and found me. So, you know. (laughs) So who are we to judge? (laughs) Some good things come out of it. Totally. (laughs) You know, you have to toe the line of managing the paranoia and coming to terms with the fact that this industry is becoming more legitimate. However, you are also still at risk. And so those are two sort of things you have to counterbalance. Like any other business, you should have records, you should have receipts, you should operate, be operating as any other business. So our next big question is, you know, you're, now you're a cooperator of our collective, but what kind of corporation are you? Because remember, we're operating under California medical marijuana law, but you're a business. So you have to comply with California corporations law too. Correct. So our next big rule that we get from our attorney general guidelines is that you have to be a non-profit entity. And disclaimer, this all changes with the Medical Marijuana Regulation Safety Act, but for the time being, this is the law. Yes. We kind of changed the name in our office. Instead of calling it a non-profit, Maytal came up with the fact that it is a not-for-profit. Well, I didn't come up with that, but I emphasize it. <laughs> she emphasizes it big time. But I like it because it's a great distinction. Right. Non-profits, by their nature, qualify for tax exemption under federal law. But because marijuana and cannabis is federally illegal, illegal you don't qualify for that lovely fund status. So you are a not-for-profit entity that is paying taxes like a regular business. Um, Try and tease your CPA with how to figure that one out. (laughs) Theoretically, you could organize as any type of corporation. However, I like the, this is Maytal, I like the Nonprofit Mutual Benefit Corporation, and the reason for that is the first two words are nonprofit. And, I like that. Right? If I'm, yep. say, if I'm looking at a jury and I say, this is a nonprofit, just like the Attorney General requires, and look, the state articles of incorporation stated is such, that just helps your case a little bit further. It doesn't mean you can be raking in the dough and not reporting it, you'll still be violating the law. But if you are following the not-for-profit model, the fact that it says it in your articles of incorporation is even better. I also like that it's a non-profit mutual benefit corp. 
that we file. And I like the fact this is mutual benefit because that is indicative of a collective or a co-op because it's beneficial for everybody involved in the company. It's for the members, by the members. Yeah, and it's interesting because back to the situation where it's supposed to be the Amish, et cetera, et cetera, the nonprofit issue really arises when on law enforcement or government takes that to mean that no money can exchange hands. And that was kind of law enforcement, the city of LA, currently the city of San Diego, a lot of district attorneys take the position that anytime you exchange marijuana for money, that is an illegal sale. And it's taken us close to, I would say, eight years or maybe six years to transform the discussion. And there were a lot of very important cases that came out of the California Supreme Court that identified exactly what a collective is allowed to do and what a collective is not allowed to do. And they used the attorney general guidelines to determine that you're allowed to get revenue, you're allowed to pay yourself, you're allowed to be reimbursed for your costs, and your employees are allowed to be paid. You're allowed to operate as a business. That is sort of the key differentiating factor. You're not the Amish. You're allowed to be a business, (laughs) but there cannot be this huge profit margin at the end of the day. That is problematic. I'm I'm imagining all of the listeners' faces when we said nonprofit and they're thinking about going into business and, you know, everything just kind of like drooped. And I bet everybody was like, "Mm, maybe I'm not going to do this. But guys, remember the Red Cross... That's also a nonprofit. Do you think they're making money? Yeah, I think the CEO's yeah. salary is, I don't know, like seven fifty a year or something like that. There we go. So look at that salary for a nonprofit. Doesn't mean you can't make money. So don't get discouraged. Yes, and that law changes very, very soon. As we sort of previously mentioned, we'll discuss further, it's going to become a for-profit industry very soon. In the meantime, you know, you really have to keep a tight reins on the finances yep. and any just think about it. Any money that comes in has to go back into the collective. That's kind of, you just have to reinvest the money into your members and into your golden rule for operating as a not for profit. So with sort of this progress from the co-op idea to the collective idea, we can allow for a more traditional distribution model where you have a person who makes the edibles, a person who grows the flour, and then at the end of the day, a retail outlet, which is a dispensary or a delivery or whatever it is. Now, if you want to make edibles or you want to make concentrates or if you want to grow flowers only and take it to a dispensary, then you have to participate in the collective model. And how do you do that? The bottom line is you have to become a member of that collective to be a contributing member of that collective. And at the end of the day, you may want to organize yourself as a business depending on the volume that you're doing. So first we've got that you've got to be a collective or cooperative. Then we've got that you have to be a non-profit or not-for-profit. And now we've got what the general rule is that you have to be closed circuit. And that's sort of where the membership stuff comes in. Any marijuana that is distributed or received must be within a closed loop system. The idea is that it's by the patients and for the patients. Remember, it was Mutual Benefit Corp. So it's mutually benefiting the producers and the consumers. 
those of you out there that are engaged in the quote unquote brokering business, that is a little bit outside of the closed loop. It will be available under the Medical Marijuana Regulation and Safety Act. But as far as a closed circuit goes, you know, if you take the law sort of in its purest, it's supposed to be farm to table. So the grower brings the flowers to the dispensary, becomes a member of the dispensary, or is already a member of the dispensary. The dispensary then sells it to someone who is a patient. And and another member of the dispensary. Exactly. Everybody's gotta be a part of the same circle. In order to receive or give, you have to be a part of the circle. You know, then we get the follow-up question. What about concentrates? What about edibles? What about tinctures and lotions and eye drops and syrup? And really, at the end of the day, it boils down to the most basic collective model. That is at your core. That is at your foundation. Whatever other creative stuff you're doing, that is a different question. And there are complicated corporate structures that may apply if you're doing other stuff, but at the end of the day, your most basic, basic model is a collective model. So you're following the three major rules that we kind of have set out for you. You're a nonprofit, you're a collective or a cooperative, and you're operating as a closed circuit. So ding, ding, you're lawful? No. Yes. What's the answer to the question? (laughs) Yes and no. Yes and no. (laughs) So I have a cooperative or a collective. How much can my business possess? And it goes down to the most basic, legal, fundamental principle that you find all over the law. It's this very complicated, interesting word. And that word is reasonable. Reasonable. I hate that. It pops up everywhere. You can have a reasonable amount of marijuana for your patients in the aggregate. Right. Which really is a whole bunch of legal mumbo-jumbo jargon for saying that collectively you can have as much as each patient needs. As much as the group needs. You add it up, right? So we use that 6-12-8 model that we discussed before. That's a good guideline. It's not necessarily the law, but it's a good guideline. If you listen to the patient's podcast, we talked all about that. And those of you that were the know-it-alls that didn't listen to the patient podcast, you already knew the 6, 8, and 12. (laughs) So there's that. But that still now applies. Right. So as a guideline, if you have 10 patients, the acceptable or reasonable amount of cannabis for them is 80 ounces because it's 8 ounces per patient and 6 mature or 12 immature plants per patient. So it can be 60 mature, 120 immature, or some kind of combination thereof, but it has to be reasonable. What if your doctor gives you a recommendation to grow 99 plants? Are you protected? Is that a license to grow marijuana for other people? Oh, our answers are always yes and no. (laughs) But this is more on the no side than it is on the yes side. Yeah, the doctor cannot give you a license to grow for other people. That is a government job. It's the same way that doctors can't give you a license to tint your windows. You guys, I tried that once. (laughs) I got a prescription for tinted windows. Dermatologists actually give those out. (laughs) But, But the cop's answer to me was... The doctor can't tell you that you're allowed to break the law. (laughs) 
that's a really good example. Uh, yeah, the doc a doctor can't tell you you're allowed to break the law. The law is the law. Yep. So if a doctor gives you a 99 plant rack, that is his recommendation or her recommendation for your personal amount of marijuana. It does not give you license to distribute to other people. And I used to say that that license was completely implausible, illegal, just a doctor's way of making more money. Yes, well, where did the 99 come from? So reverse back real quick. Maytal gets excited. I she do. gets carried away. So I have to like pause for a second. The 99 plant number came from way back when, when the federal government was actively prosecuting medical marijuana patients and businesses in California. And their threshold number that the federal government was able to put their hands on you was 100 plants. And so some doctor came up with this phenomenal idea that he was going to write a recommendation for 99 plants and charge you double what he's going to charge you for your recommendation. Then they could give you the ability to grow that many plants without falling on the federal radar, if you will. Yeah, I mean, the doctor's a genius, honestly. Yeah, beyond genius. (laughs) You know, I used to say that those licenses were really, or now I'm calling it a license. No. Those recommendations Uh were complete BS. But I have seen police reports where the police will come in, find 400 plants growing. My client has a rack for 99 plants, so they'll cut down 301 plants and leave 99. Or the judge will read the police report and read that our client has a recommendation for 99 plants. And the judge will look at us and go, I'm not a doctor. I don't know if he needs 99 plants or not. Right. And there are arguments to say that, you know, in the most extreme scenario, let's say, you know, someone is seriously ill. They don't smoke it. They eat it. This is their first time growing. So they need leeway for plants dying and crops dying. And the fact that they don't have a green thumb. Spider mites. It's the spider mites defense. Ew. Is that, is that like a legit thing? Yeah. The spider mites Oh, defense? we talk about spider mites all the time. They kill the crop like crazy. That. So spider mites and 99 plant recommendations can work, but I wouldn't hang your hat on it. I always say that, you know, you can get the 99 plant rec, but if you are going to be distributing to other people, you should have other patients that you provide for and you should have their recommendations on file, and a membership agreement with your collective on file. So technically, you should be able, or anybody should be able to walk into your grow or your collective, or your dispen- whatever it is that you're doing, and you should be able to say, these six plants belong to this patient, and these six plants belong to this patient, so you know exactly how your numbers, I mean, you don't really have to like label your plants for each patient, although people do that, but you don't have to. I mean, one of the most sophisticated grows I've ever seen, every plant, he has a a tag sticking out that has a number on it. And you scan that number and it directly goes back to the actual patient that they're growing for. So that protects the patient's identity in that if there ever is a law enforcement encounter, their status as a patient or belonging to this collective is kept confidential, but the operator is protected and demonstrating that each plant actually belongs to a bona fide patient. And it's accounted for. So that's a really great way to keep track of what your collective or cooperative is in possession of. And, you know, those cases where I go to court and the defendant has taken those measures to ensure 
compliance with California law, it goes a very long way with the prosecutor or the judge. And we've been very successful in getting these cases dismissed, getting people's marijuana returned to them. But it takes a really strong showing of compliance with California law. I've totally had prosecutors, like their face will light up when I say, oh, I have, I have membership agreements and patient recommendations for the amount they were in possession of. They're like, oh, really great. Let's see them. There's absolutely a direct correlation between our criminal cases resolving or getting dismissed and us dropping off that packet. A hundred percent. They love it. Yeah, well, I mean, we went to, when we went to court in San Fernando the other day, the client had been represented by an attorney previously, and we got on the case really, really late. He was growing, he had like 600 plants, and the offer was plead to a felony, serve 60 days in jail, and then you'll be on three years formal probation. Formal probation Ugh. is, yeah. So you check in with a probation officer, you have to take drug tests, all of that stuff. Such fun stuff, guys. You know, we noticed that in the police report and also from our client's statements that he had a stack of about 90 patients' recommendations on site at the grow that the police definitely saw, and those are the people that he was growing for. So this was only our second court appearance. I show up, the judge fully expects us to do a preliminary hearing. A preliminary hearing is like a mini trial. And I show up, I hand the judge the stack of 100 patients plus my 30 page motion. The judge takes us back in chambers, you know, makes me and the prosecutor talk about the situation. Lo and behold, the next offer is, you know, a slap on the wrist, misdemeanor that gets erased in two years, summary probation, no big deal for a guy that was barely organized and had over 600 plants. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, he he wasn't incorporated like we're telling you you need to do. This doesn't mean go out and like do what you want to do and don't incorporate and we can still defend you. I mean, we can, but you make our job a lot harder when you do that. But it was great because we put all of those recommendations, we attached it to the motion, and it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack when you hand them a hundred and what 1510 page motion and they kind of like make this big gulp and look at you like where the hell did you come from and who are you and what kind of attorney are you yeah it's the best oh, it looks best. so oh it was amazing so that's why you know you need to have yourself organized because then you give us ammunition when we get into court and the more legitimate you are the better your defense yeah 100% One of my biggest questions that I get when people sit in my office is like, how do law enforcement agencies get to these dispensaries and these collectives? So if you're a dispensary, law enforcement or LAPD or whatever city you're in, they can get to you at one of two ways. You can either get a really lovely letter from the city attorney in, in Los Angeles. There are letters that are signed by Mr. Mike Fuhrer. And they pretty much tell you if you're violating Prop D, they'll tell you that you are in violation of local municipal code and they'll give you 30 days to shut down. And if you don't, they'll file criminal charges against you for, because we're on a city level, misdemeanor or an infraction. And that letter will go to you and to your landlord. So both of you have to present some sort of defense. The other way that law enforcement can get to you is via a search warrant. 
a lot of times the way that this plays out in practical reality is that a police officer, if you're if you have a dispensary, a police officer, especially here in LA, will write this really thick report that says, I drove by and there was a green cross. Then I went to the doctor and got a recommendation for the use of medical marijuana and I went into said green cross dispensary, signed up as a patient, showed him my recommendation and, and was bought marijuana. Right. <laughs> so that's, you know, the genius report to prove that you're actually operating a medical marijuana want a business he or she will then transfer that police report to the city attorney's office and the city attorney will generate that letter if you ignore the letter you may get another letter or you may get you a may- criminal complaint in the mail exactly <laughs> so that's kind of the way that it shakes down here in la with dispensaries search warrants are more common with cultivation sites or kitchens that are making edibles or hash factories and the way that an officer might get a search warrant is that he or she would get an anonymous tip or a a confidential informant will let them be nice to your ex-boyfriends and ex-girlfriends so they don't tip people actually you may be laughing I mean, I laughed when I heard that, but it's totally true. It totally happens. Yeah, disgruntled employees, disgruntled exes, your neighbor who hates you, whoever it is will give a tip to the... neighbor. It's usually the neighbor. (laughs) Or if you didn't tell your landlord what you were doing, that happens too. And I mean, I had a case where my client didn't tell the landlord he was growing marijuana. My client was out of town for, I think, one night, and there was a leak in the next door unit. And that leak caused the landlord to have to enter my client's unit, saw all the plants, freaked out, and called the police. Oops. It might be worth it to tell your landlord what you want to do. I'm just saying. But anyway, some kind of information finds its way to the police officer. The police officer then has to find one other corroborating piece of evidence. So So something else that tells them that you're actually doing what they think you're doing. Yeah. And what's their favorite place? DWP. Right. The Department of Water and Power, Edison Company, whatever utility company you're using, they can subpoena your records. So they'll pull it up and they'll compare it to all your neighbors. And when you're using three or four times the amount of electricity and water than your next door neighbor with double the square footage than you, then they wonder what the hell you're doing. And all the officer has to do is go see a judge and say... In my expertise, people who are growing marijuana tend to have very high electric bills. That, coupled with the fact that their neighbor told me it smelled like marijuana, and maybe one other thing, maybe they saw you bringing in soil, or they followed you around for a bit and saw the plants, or whatever it is, there might be one other little factor that they need. That gets them the search warrant. They can come in, they can search your your vehicle they can search your person they can search your location and sometimes they can even search your cell phone use a password on your cell phone i know i've asked a lot of people like do you have a password on your cell phone my response is like oh i I don't i don't have to worry about my girlfriend like it's not a big deal and i was like bozo it's not about your girlfriend (laughs) yeah i mean the truth is you know everyone has something on their phone that they don't want becoming public and so that's a good idea to password protect it like what if you lose your phone Right. You want some stranger going through your photos. 
Or the police. Or the police in this in this instance. <laughs> so that's kind of the business basics. I think we covered most of it. I'm sure there's a burning desire question because you're so advanced in your corporate structure that you need us to answer. Hey, know-it-alls, we're talking to you. <laughs> but these are the <laughs> basics. And, you know, stay with us as we continue to cover the basics of current California law, future California law, trends and politics. And um, hopefully we'll answer all your questions and, and give you some food for thought. This is attorney Maytal Manzuri. And this is attorney Alexis Steinberg. Thank you for joining us as we navigate the weeds of cannabis justice. We can also be found, a little bit of a shameless plug, on Facebook under Manzuri Law and on Instagram and Twitter at 420 Attorneys. There you go. And Legally Dash Blunt. <laughs>